Father, we uh, come to a part of this text today that is just so powerful and uh, so eye-opening, Lord. Uh, I, I can go back and remember uh, when I first read these words that we'll be looking at today and just how powerfully they uh, came to me, Lord, and, and uh, what a blessing they were. To, Lord, to be able to see you in all your glory to see you for who you are. That's really what the book of Revelation is about. We, we, we all are interested in the end times and who the Antichrist might be and when you might come back, Lord. But the greatest thing about this book and the greatest thing about the whole Bible is, is the vision we have of you. Lord, the fact that you can open our eyes and that we can see you in a way that, that uh, the rest of the world can't. And Lord, I just ask is there, if there's anyone here today, Lord, as we look through this study that's never seen you for who you are, that, Lord, you'll open their eyes and uh, they'll see the, just the greatness of your glory, Lord. It's just such a blessing to know you. It's such a blessing to know that you've died for us and gave your life for us so that that veil could be removed, and Lord, so that we could see you with our spiritual eyes. And so, Lord, I just ask that you bless this study today and and Lord, it can only be blessed by the power of your Holy Spirit as you open ears and open eyes to, to have the vision that John had of you. And I just ask that you show us that today as we get into Revelation. And I ask that uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Well, last time we began our study in Revelation by uh, getting a little bit of an introduction to the book. And in, if you remember, the introduction to the book is found there in the first three verses of chapter one of Revelation. Right away you get the title, if you look there, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Apocalypsis, that's the Greek word for revelation, the Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. It's really the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's also the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to unveil for us who Jesus Christ truly is. And we'll begin to look at that today. But there's another purpose in the book as we head on to the book and we get later into the book. And that purpose is to show us, if you look in verse number one, the things must, that must take place shortly. The things that have to happen before Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And then the other purpose, if you look at verse number three, is so that we are blessed. He says, blessed is he who reads and those who hears the words of this prophecy. And so God promises a blessing for everyone who pays attention today. Everyone who pays attention for the next however many days or Sundays it takes us to get through Revelation. I don't think we're going to make it through before the Lord returns, but we're going to try. <laughs> but uh, we might get one verse today. Somebody was telling me the other day, oh, you mean you only got three verses? This is going to take a long time. We'll speed up a little bit later on, but uh, we're going we're gonna to take some time here at first. So that's basically your introduction to the book. It's a pretty simple introduction. But before we actually dig in, there's one other introductory matter that I want to get into today that I think you need to have a little bit of a, uh, 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 education on because I think it uh, affects so many people's different ways of expositing this book. And that's the method of interpretation that's used when somebody uh, exegetes the book of Revelation. Now, there are as many methods of interpretation 
as there are interpreters. I, I challenge you, go get you 20 commentaries on Revelation and you'll get 20 different interpretations. Because, it's a, not, because one of the reasons is it's a very difficult book to interpret. And then the other reason is that people come in with their own agendas when they interpret the book. And so I want to talk to you just a minute about some of these methods of interpretation. And, and really, for the sake of brevity, I want to categorize those into two main methods of interpretation. And that is the historical method and the futuristic method. Now, this is going to make some sense here later on, so hang with me. And once we get through this, we can, we can really uh, dig into the book. But over the centuries, different scholars, many scholars have used the historical method of interpretation. And that's a very dangerous method to use. And that's why I want to talk about it a little bit. Basically, when you use the historical method, what you're saying is that all of the events that, you, that are described in Revelation have taken place sometime or even taken place now are, have taken place in the history since Jesus Christ has died, those sometimes in that period of 2,000 years. For example, let me give you an example of people who use the historical interpretation. A lot of the reformers use the historical interpretation of the book of Revelation. They believed that the time in which they were living was the great tribulation. And they believed that the persecution that they were uh, enduring from the Catholic Church was the great tribulation. And so you, you can guess who they thought was the Antichrist. They thought the Pope was the Antichrist. There's a lot of people who believe the Pope today is the Antichrist. But that is using the historical method of interpretation. Uh, you probably have heard this interpretation before if you've studied Revelation in, in any uh, serious matter. A lot of interpreters believe that the seven churches that are listed in Revelation or spoken of in Revelation are actually the seven church ages that begin with the Ephesus represents the first church and Laodicea represents the church that will be in, in, uh, uh, active in the time of the, uh, when the rapture takes place. And so uh, the rest of these churches represent various church periods in church history. Now actually I could give some credence to that interpretation because you can actually take that and you can look at these churches and they do kind of match up with various periods of time in church history. But listen to me, that is a subjective interpretation and there's no way that you can prove that interpretation to be accurate. So you have to be real careful with that. There are people, I hear people talking about how World War I and World War II were actually part of the trumpets are part of the vials of judgment of God. And so that's a historical interpretation. You hear people talking about right now that the war that's taking place in, in uh, Syria and the, 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 the turmoil in the Middle East is part of the trumpets and the vials of revelation. That's an historical interpretation. So you get all sorts of interpretations that are based upon saying that these vials, these trumpets, these judgments are actually, have actually taken place in history. And you've got to guard yourself against that type of interpretation. But the one that I want to spend a little bit of time on that's maybe the most common historical interpretation is the preterist interpretation. How many of you in, in this room have heard of preterism? 
Well, good for you. You got innocent ears. That's good. Well, you won't be you won't be influenced by that. Let me warn you. There are a lot of preterists out there, and they're they're not only in on the, on the fringes of the church. They're they're they have penetrated the mainstream dominations denominations. Now, let me tell you what preterism is, and so maybe you will have heard of it when I tell you what it is. Basically, preterism, the, the word preterism comes from the Latin word preter, which means past. That's all it means. It simply means past. And so what the preterists believe, they believe that everything that in Revelation, all of these vile judgments, all of these, these vials, these, these trumpets, the judgments of God, all of these things uh, took place actually in the past, but in the first century. They believe that everything happened in the first century and that the main judgments that you read about in Revelation were actually symbolic of the destruction of Israel in 70 AD when Titus came down and destroyed uh, Israel and destroyed, burned down Jerusalem and killed all of those people and scattered the Jews throughout the world. They believe that that, Preterists believe that that actually uh, is, are the events that are spoken of in Revelation and that the Antichrist were the Roman emperors of that time, Vespasian, uh, Nero, Domitian. Those were some of the names that they used to, that they say uh, those people are the Antichrist. Now, here's my problem. I've got a real problem with that interpretation. They actually believe, have you ever heard of the kingdom now theology? That we're actually in the kingdom now? That Jesus actually has returned? The preterist believes that he actually has returned to this earth and he's ruling and reigning. He's returned spiritually and he's ruling and reigning through the church. And we're actually in the millennium. What a wonderful age it is, right? I mean, you've got to be on some kind of drug to believe that we're in the millennium. That the devil's on a chain or he's been cast into hell? Well, if he's on a chain, then he's on a very long chain because he's wreaking a lot of havoc in this world right now. So I can't buy into this preterism movement at all. I almost want to name some names of some very popular preachers who are preterists. I'm not going to name them today. You can ask me afterwards and I might tell you a few. But, they, but that's what they believe and that's what they teach and they teach it in a very subtle way. And the reason I give you this introductory matter is so you can be on guard of those type of interpretations. Well, the second method that I want to look at here is the futuristic method of interpretation. And that method of interpretation uh, teaches that everything... Uh, that happens in Revelation is future. It, it, it is, is going to happen sometimes in the future. Every, that means that everything in Revelation is prophetic. Now, if I was to hear, adhere to one of those two methods, I would adhere to the futuristic method of interpretation because I do believe that most of Revelation is prophecy. But you've got to guard against those people who have a very strict futuristic method of interpretation. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, you probably have heard that on September, we talked about it a few weeks ago, on September the 23rd of 
2017 that the stars are going to align in such a way that they fulfill the prophecy of Revelation chapter 12. You're going to have the picture of the woman and the beast and the child in the stars. And so they believe that that's in that future, on that future date, that the rapture is going to take place and Christ is going to return. And I hope, that, like I said last week, I hope that is the date because that's my birthday and I, I, I can't think of a better birthday present than that, than to, to get out of here. But but I believe Revelation 12, for the most part, is history. It's going back and talking about Jesus Christ and his birth and how the devil tried to prevent his birth. I believe that's what we're going to see. And I believe there's a lot of things in Revelation that are history. The vision itself is historical. I mean, if you look at the first chapter there, John says, I was on the Isle of Patmos. I was in the spirit. I heard behind me. All of that is in the past. So you got to be real careful about how you interpret this book, whether you look at it historically or whether or not you look at it uh, uh, futuristically. So how do we interpret the book? Well, let me tell you how you interpret the book of Revelation. You interpret the book of Revelation the same way you would interpret any book of the Bible. When it's literal, when it's spoken as literal, it is literal. When it's spoken as symbolic, it is symbolic. When it's spoken as historical, it is historical. When it's spoken as futuristic, it is prophetic. And sometimes some of this stuff is allegorical. I will admit that. But you have to be real careful with that because whenever you get into allegory where you give the meaning something, you give the text a meaning something other than the literal meaning, whenever you do that, you're, you're making a subjective interpretation. And only one person can allow you to do that. And who is that? The Holy Spirit himself. Paul spoke allegorically and he did that by the Holy Spirit. Egypt is spoken of as, 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 as allegorically uh, representing the world. And so there's, other, there's lots of allegories in the Bible, and I, and I certainly see those. I, I, you, you're not told to interpret this book that way, but the Song of Solomon, I believe, is allegorical. It's a picture of Christ and his bride, even though literally it's a picture of Solomon and the, his marriage to the Shumanite woman. But I believe allegorically, I think you're okay interpreting that as a picture of Christ being married to the church. But that, that's a subjective interpretation. And, and the reason you get so many interpretations in Revelation is that so many people treat it subjectively. They want it to say what they want it to say. And we're not going to approach that book that way. We're going to approach this book honestly. We're going to look at it. And we're going to try to try to determine what's literal. And we're going to treat it as literal and what's symbolic. And we're going to treat it symbolically. But with that said, let me say this. Most of Revelation, most of it, is, hasn't been fulfilled. It is a prophecy. It is prophecy. And it lines up perfectly with the prophecies in the rest of the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Actually, there are 550 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And most of those refer back to the prophets. You'll see a lot of the stuff that we're studying on Wednesday night in the Minor Prophets. You'll actually see it uh, referenced in the book of Revelation. Now, there's not one single exact 
quote, and so the critics will say, no, it doesn't have, he didn't pull anything out of the Old Testament. Oh, he pulled a bunch of stuff out of the Old Testament. He, he paraphrased it, but, it's, but there's like 550 references there to the Old Testament, and there's references to the New Testament. And every single one of these references are about the day of the Lord. So the book of Revelation, one of its secondary purposes, which is much of the material is all about, is to present to us the things that are going to come before Jesus Christ returns to this earth. It's the time period, what we call the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is not actually a day. The day of the Lord is a time period. It's a day that begins with the rapture, and it ends with us being in eternity. And if you look at the book of Revelation, when the prophecies begin, the prophecies begin, I believe, with the rapture, and it ends with us in eternity. So it matches up perfectly with the rest of Scripture. Now, we know, you remember, and this is why we went to 2 Thessalonians, we know that certain things have to happen before the day of the Lord begins. And those things haven't happened, so we know the day of the Lord hasn't started yet. So when you listen to some of these prophecy guys talking about what's going on with Russia and what's going on in Syria and what's going on with Israel as being part of the revelation, that's not true. Now, it's, lead, it's the things that are leading up to revelation. And it's pretty scary how all these things are lining up to fit revelation. But they haven't started yet. Because we know from 2 Thessalonians that a couple of things have to happen before the day of the Lord begins. First of all, remember what had to happen. The church has to become totally apostate. Well, for the church to come a totally apostate, I got to be out of here because I'm not apostate. Now, some of you apostates, you know, you might already be there. I don't think any of you are apostates. But, but uh, that's one thing that has to happen. And then remember, that which restrains the Antichrist from coming on the scene has to be removed. What restrains the Antichrist from coming on the scene? The Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit, and you'll see this in our text today, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? He dwells in true believers. He dwells in true churches. And so those true churches or the people in those true churches who are true Christians have to be removed before the Antichrist comes on the scene. And, and we're told in Revelation when those two events happen, then the great tribulation will begin. The day of the Lord will begin. So the day of the Lord didn't begin in the Reformation. The day of the Lord didn't begin in World War I or World War II as some people think happened. Now, I'll tell you what, you look at Hitler. I would have thought in that time, had we had entered the Great Tribulation. I mean, he was an antichrist. Look at the persecution he, he orchestrated against the church and against, against the Jews. And if he had taken total control of this world, he would have killed every Jew on this earth and every Christian on this earth. And that's a picture of what you see in Revelation of what the antichrist does when he takes power. But God stopped that because that wasn't the Great Tribulation. But these events foreshadow, a lot of things we're seeing right now foreshadow the Great Tribulation. What happened to the Reformers, that foreshadows the Great Tribulation. But that's not the Great Tribulation. And if you look at this text honestly, if you look at this and you look at what's literal as literal, and you look at what is symbolic as symbolic, you're going to realize that the things that happen in Revelation are worse than anything that's ever happened on this earth up until now. It's scary what's going to happen on this earth in Revelation. I mean, even dropping those bombs in Japan were not as bad as what's going to happen in Revelation. It's going to be really, 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 really bad. 
And one of the reasons God wants you to see how bad it's going to be is because he doesn't want you here when it gets that bad. He wants to take you out of here. And the only way he can take you out of here is if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So, if you want to approach this book right, then you want to approach this book honestly. You want to look at this not with your own subjective agenda, but you want to look at this honestly. And even with that, I'm going to have to make a confession here. I'm not going to be able to tell you everything correctly in Revelation. This is the first time I've ever said that. I know you. I know you. But it is a very difficult book to interpret. And there's a lot of gray areas in this book. And we're going to try to figure out what we can figure out by the grace of God and by the spirit of God. But we're going to approach this thing honestly. And if we can't figure it out, we're just going to have to say, hey, we can't figure this out. And there's going to be some areas we can't figure it out. The, 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 well, let me tell you what. Well, you're going to be able to understand the book of Revelation fully. When anybody tells you they understand the book of Revelation fully is a liar. But when you, they might think, they might have deceived themselves, but they're, but they're a liar. The only position, the position you're going to have to be in to where you can say, I understand Revelation fully, is when we're in heaven and you look back on all these events and all these events have occurred and then all of these puzzles will make sense for us. But, but with that said, uh, for the most part, the book of Revelation is meant for us to study and it's meant for us to understand. We're going to be able to understand most of this. And every time you study it, you're going to be able to understand a little bit more. So, so there's going to be a lot of this that, that, uh, that uh, is going to be really good food for our souls. And, and that's why he says here in, in verse number one when he, gave his, when he gave his purpose, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. That's the audience, his servants. Then he sent and signified it by his angel uh, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads this and those who hear the words uh, of this prophecy and keep those things which and keep those things near their heart, things which are written uh, in it. For the time is near. It's very, very near. Let me tell you what. We might not live to see the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. I have a hunch we will. I have a hunch I will. I have, if I don't, some of you will. But one way or the other, you're going to see Jesus Christ really, really soon. A hundred years from now, unless you're some kind of anomaly, you're going to see the Lord in his glory. The things that we see here, the time is near. The time is very, very near. And God wants to bless us with this book. He wants to, things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, if, if, if you look at this world honestly, unless your head is buried in the sand somewhere, you can't help but see that things are getting worse and worse and worse. And, they're, and, it's, and it's moving towards the revelation exponentially. I mean, things are getting so bad so fast 
that we have to know that the time is near. And the reason God gives us this book, especially for those of us living this, in this age, is to bless us, to give us comfort and hope that, hey, all of this is part of God's plan. Everything that we see happening in this world is part of God's plan. And so uh, he, he wants us awake during this time. And uh, uh, he wants to comfort our hearts with this book. And that's why the devil hates this book so much. The devil hates this book because this book can comfort believers. This can encourage believers. It can encourage you to do great things for the Lord because when you truly realize that the time is near, it changes how you live your life. You know, the two books that I believe the devil has expended most of his energy attacking are the books of Genesis and the book of Revelation, or the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. And why is that so? Because if he can get you away from a sound, literal interpretation of Genesis and Revelation, everything else in between falls. It all falls. I mean, these are foundational books. Genesis and Revelation are foundational to everything that we believe. Everything that's in between these books from Exodus to Jude are based upon what we know or learn in Genesis and Revelation. I, I, I kind of think of these two books as like theological bookends. And, and, and they keep all the other books standing. And if you pull off one of the, one of the, one of the ends, if you, if, you, if you distort what you believe about Genesis, then the rest of the books are going to fall too. And so, so uh, they're very important for us to, 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 to learn and to study. I like what H.A. Ironside had to say about the importance of these two books. Listen to what he said. He says, in one book, you have the beginning of all things. And in the other, the consummation of all things. Genesis gives us the creation of the heavens and the earth. Revelation presents a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis shows the earthly paradise. Revelation shows us the paradise of God, the paradise regained through Christ's atonement. In Genesis, we see the first man and his wife set over all of creation. In Revelation, we see the second man with his bride, the church, ruling over the redeemed world. In Genesis, we are told of the first sacrificial lamb. In Revelation, we see the lamb sitting on his heavenly throne. In Genesis, we see the serpent tempting man to sin. In Revelation, we see that old serpent cast into the lake of fire. And this is the one I really like. In Genesis, we see sorrow and pain and tears entered into the world. And in Re Revelation, we see God wiping away the tears. That's why I love to study Genesis, and I love to study the book of Revelation because those two books make sense of a world that makes no sense. In those two books, we see the original plan of God. We see God's plan at work now, and we see God's future plan for the heavens and the earth. And in the dark times in which we live, 
we all need to be reassured that God is on his throne and that he has a plan for mankind and that plan is to bring paradise back to this earth. And we won't be part of that plan. Now, let's go back to where we left off last time and we'll cover a couple of chapters here. Don't bet on it, I'm teasing. <laughs> so let's go back to where we left off last time and I want to... Uh, Pick up in verse number four, and we'll see how far we can get here today. So look with me in Revelation chapter one, verse number four. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before, before or going forth from, who are before his throne. That's a powerful, powerful verse right there. And right away, uh, our method of interpretation of Scripture gets tested. Right there in that first verse. I mean, you can look at There's some problems right there in interpreting that verse. Do we interpret that verse literally or do we interpret it symbolically? Well, when I see seven churches of Asia, Asia sounds pretty literal to me, pretty specific, doesn't it? So, so you would think maybe you would interpret that literally. But what about the seven spirits that go forth from the throne? Now, that causes me a problem in, ter- in interpreta- interpreting that literally. Because here, O Israel, you're, the Lord your God is one God. The spirit is one spirit. They're not seven holy spirits going forth from the throne. And so that tells me that at least to some degree, I have to interpret this verse symbolically, right? Now, and then in context, that tells me that if the seven spirits are symbolic, then possibly the seven churches are symbolic. Now, that makes a lot of sense that they would both be symbolic because the number seven is a symbolic number in Scripture. I I tell you what, it's a symbolic number for me in life. I look for the number seven, not at the craps table or anything like that. That's that's not sevens there, wherever. I, I, I mean, I don't gamble, so I don't look for it there, but I look for the number seven in my life. I mean, the house we lived in, before uh, we moved to the house we're in now, it was 2417. The house we live in now is 1157. Now, if you're living in 666, <laughs> don't sell your house. But I'll tell you what, I would never buy a house with 666 on it. And that's not just superstition. I've, I've watched God work in my life, and I started looking back after I got saved at all the places we lived where the address was seven. And, and, and well, when, I got, when we got our first credit card for this church, I looked at the back, and the back three numbers on the back, 666. I said, Lord, am I the Antichrist? <laughs> I mean, it was kind of scary. And, and, and uh, I, people said, man, you got to get rid of that number. you got to get a new credit card. I said, no, I'm going to keep that credit card because that's the number of man. And that tells me that this credit card is for 
not for men's use, but for God's use. And it was reminding me every time I use that credit card that, hey, you better not use this for anything but for this church. And I, didn't, I know I needed that reminder, but I had. Well, the, my credit card now, the back n- numbers, the last four digits are zero, 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 zero. I don't know what God's telling me there. We don't have any money in the account, so don't use it. Uh, you're a big zero, George. <laughs> or really, zero of this money needs to be used for anything other than for God's kingdom. You better be a good steward of what I'm giving you or what you're using it for. Maybe that's what God's telling me with it. But I look at numbers. Num- numbers are meaningful. And the number, of se- the number seven is especially meaningful. It means divine completion. It means, it, it's, it, it refers to divine, divine perfection, per, the perfect will of God. Uh, it, whenever you see that number, the, you, in the Bible, it, th- that's what it means. And so you've got these seven spirits going forth from uh, the throne. And, and that tells me that that seven is important there. And I think it's important to the seven churches too because it means divine completion. It means the perfect will of God. It means uh, divine presence. And so it means the presence of God going forth from the throne. And, and so uh, what I believe what he's saying right there is that the spirit is going forth from the throne to the complete church, to all the churches, not just the seven churches in Asia. You know, when Jesus addressed those seven churches, I know there were a lot more churches in Asia other than those seven churches. And so you got to ask yourself a question, why did he choose those seven? I believe he chose those seven because they contained characteristics uh, that were common to all the churches in that area. And not only to that area, to all the churches throughout the world, throughout all the ages. And so that's why he picked these particular seven churches. So these seven churches are symbolic of every church and who makes up the church, believers, so they're symbolic of every believer. And so the seven spirits going forth from the throne are symbolic of the perfect will of God, the perfect presence of God, the completeness of God going out to all the churches, all seven of the churches in Asia, but all the churches in Asia, all the churches in the world, and all the churches throughout time, and all the believers throughout time. And and the Spirit goes out so that we can minister and uh, be empowered to minister and do the work of Jesus Christ. We, it's his perfect will. All that seven is there and it's very important to, to what uh, the meaning of this passage is right here. I don't know if you remember, but, but, but Jesus talked about the spirit going forth to all the churches over in Luke. You remember in, in Luke chapter 12, flip there for a minute, Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, begin down at verse number 49. And Jesus was speaking here. And listen to what he says. It's kind of a strange passage. But it gives us some insight to where we were at or where we are at when we come to Revelation 
chapter 1, verse 4, about these seven spirits going forth from the throne. It gives us the reason behind it, the perfect will of God, the seven. He says in verse number 49, he says, I came to send fire. Now, a lot of expositors or some expositors will tell you that that, uh, that fire refers to judgment, that Christ came to send judgment. That's not what he's talking about there. Obviously, because if you read on, it says, I came to send fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Christ never desired. Christ said, I did not come into the world to judge the world. I came into the world to save the world. So it was never his desire to judge the world. So this, has, this fire has to refer to one thing. What does it refer to? It refers to the Holy Spirit. So he says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism, before I can, it can be kindled, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now again, you can't interpret that literally there. You have to interpret that symbolically. He wasn't talking about he needed to be baptized. He had already been baptized. And in the first place, he didn't need to be baptized. So that's not what he's talking about. What's the baptism that had to take place before he could send out his Holy Spirit? The cross. He had to die on the cross to take care of our sin because you can't receive holy God until your sin is taken care of. And so before he could send out the fire to his church, first of all, he had to die on a cross for our sins. So he says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now distressed is a bad translation there. The literal word there is straightened. It means to be put in a straitjacket. You see what Jesus is saying right there? Until that happens, I'm really in a straitjacket. I really can't do what I want to do. I'm totally constrained. Now, how was Jesus constrained? Well, when Jesus came to this earth, he emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his glory, and he took on flesh. He, he was veiled, he was God veiled in the flesh. And he limited, he, in, in doing so, he limited himself in what he could do. He could not be in Jerusalem and be in, in Capernaum at the same time. He could not be in Judea and be in Galilee at the same time. He could not be in Israel and be in Germany at the same time. He, he was restricted in what he could do. But then all of a sudden, he, or not all of a sudden, but his plan was to die for our sins and then send forth his Holy Spirit so that he was no longer constrained and so that he could, be through, he, he could manifest himself throughout the earth. And so how does he do that? Through the church. And, and so that's why on Pentecost, you remember on Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down, it was pictured as what? It was pictured as fire coming down from heaven. And the Spirit split itself among the various believers in that room. So if there was 100 believers in that room, there were 100 tongues of fire on each one of those believers. How many spirits were there? One Spirit. The Spirit didn't really separate himself. That was a picture given to us of what God was doing. And so now as we come back to Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, we see these seven spirits, 
And again, I think a better translation there, we see these seven spirits going forth from the throne to seven churches. Seven spirits represent what? One spirit. To seven churches who represent what? One church, the whole church. Now we're talking about the true church here, not the apostate church. The divine complete church filled with the divine spirit, with the divine presence. So today if there are 70 churches in Lafayette who are true churches, then there are 70 spirits going forth into those churches. It's really one Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. And if there's 70 believers in each one of those 70 churches, then there's 490 spirits going out into those 70 churches with those 70 spirits. But again, it's only one spirit. And that's the picture that, that John has given us here uh, in the book of Revelation. Now, now we get to the exciting stuff. The really exciting stuff. We get to the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The apocalypsis. The revelation. I, I, I can't tell you how excited I was the first time I read this after I got saved. I had spent 40 years of my life thinking Jesus was a good man. Even when I was in church, even when I was baptized as a young boy, I thought of Jesus as a really good man, a good prophet who went on a cross and did something really noble and died for people's sins. But I remember when I opened up the book of Revelation and I began to read these first chapters in the book of Revelation, I saw Jesus for who he really is, almighty God. Do you understand what that does to your perspective of what he did for us on the cross, what he does for us now? God, your creator, my creator, emptied himself of all his glory to come with one set purpose. And that was to hang on that cross for my sins and for your sins so that we could become his children so that we could live with him for eternity. And if you seem as any less than God, then you deprecate what he did for us. He wasn't just a man there. There were a lot, there were two men there dying next to him and they weren't dying for anybody. And they could, even if they were really good men and they were trying to die for their relatives, they couldn't die for their relatives. They were helpless. They weren't God. But Jesus Christ was God. He is God. And he always will be God. And that's what you get here right in, uh, as we begin uh, in Revelation in verse number four. Let's read it again. It says, John, in the, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, there are some expositors. I call them hyper-Trinitarians. I'm not going to get into that, but there are some expositors who will say that this is a description of the Trinity. The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. I don't think so. Not at all. Now, you might could take that and you could apply that to the Trinity, but that's not a description of the Trinity. This is not the apocalypsis of the Trinity. This is not the apocalypsis of the Father. This is not the revelation of the, 
of the Spirit. This is not the revelation of the Father. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this description that we get right here that John gives us is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what John does here in these next few verses, he uses what we what scholars call Hebrew parallelism. And that's where you say you say the same thing in different ways. You just you just say it one way, then you say it another way, then you say it another way. You see that in the Proverbs, you see that in the Psalms. And John was very familiar with all that. And I don't think, this is all spoken of by the Spirit, so it's the Spirit of God using Hebrew parallelism right here. And, and, And look at the description. Jesus is the one who was, he's the one who, or he's the one who is, he's the one who was, and he's the one who is to come. Look down at verse number five. It says, he is, we get the he is. He is the firstborn over the dead. He was He was the one who loved us and and died first and washed us for our sins. Look at verse number 7. He says, he is the one who is to come to rule this earth. So he is the one who is. He's the one who was. He's the one who is to come. Then look down at verse number 8. Look down at verse number 8. He says, I am the Alpha. I am the Alpha. The Alpha is the beginning. It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. So the alphabet is I mean, the alpha is he was. All the letters in between, he is. And then the omega is he is to come. He's the last. He's the last, but he's, he's the end, but his end is the very beginning. Let me tell you what, when Christ comes back to this earth in the end, in the omega, that's when time really begins. That's when life on this earth begins as it was meant to be from the very beginning. And so he is the one who is, the one. he's the one who was, and he is the... He is the one uh, to come. Now, that matches up perfectly with the rest of Scripture. First of all, he is the one who was. Who was he? He was a baby born in Bethlehem. He was. He was a baby born in Bethlehem. He was crucified on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day. He was ascended or did ascend back to heaven. But you know what? You can go back further than that. Jesus was there at the creation because guess what? He was the creator. John says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and all things that were made were made by Him. He is our creator. All things that were made, Paul says in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, all things, all things were made by him. They were made by him, for him, and through him. And all things consist in him. He was. Well, you want to go back a little further than that? Go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who is from old, he is from everlasting. His going forth are from everlasting. You go back as far in eternity as you want to go, and he was. But he also is. He also is. He's always is. He's always is. You know, one of my favorite Clint Eastwood lines in the Bible was, is in, is in uh, John chapter 8, when they were all getting on Jesus and and, and just to make them a little matter, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was. He says, I is. I am. That's bad English. 
he wanted to really fit my sermon here, he would have said I is, but he didn't. He said I am. I am. I am who I am. Where else did he say that? He said that to Moses in the burning bush. Moses saw one like the angel of the Lord. Guess who he saw? He saw the one who was, who is, who is to come. He saw none other than Jesus Christ. That's who he, he is. And you know what? I love the fact he is. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus is not evolving, friends, as some people are teaching in this world today. He's not evolving. He's always who he is. He's the same. You can count on him. You can count on his word. His word's not changing. He's not changing. He's the God of the Old Testament, and he's the God of the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he, guess what? He is to come. He is to come, and he's coming really soon. He's going to come back to this earth, and he's going to rule and reign as king of kings and Lord of lords forever. Hallelujah. What a glorious day that's going to be. So, at this rate, we got one verse today. Count the number of verses in Revelation, and you can figure out how long we're going to be in this book. We definitely, the rapture will take place before we finish. I am going to be pretty slow going through this part, though, because this is the revelation. This is what the revelation is all about. It's about the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And that's what we get in these first few chapters. You know, Adam and Eve had it made. They really had it made. If you ever get to heaven... If you don't kill them first, I will. <laughs> I'm joking. But they had it made. They left things alone. We'd all had it made. No, we'd all done the same thing they did, right? But they had it made. They lived in paradise in the Garden of Eden, and they walked with God. They talked with God. They saw God with their eyes. They saw the one who was, who's going forth or from everlasting. They saw Jesus Christ. I have no doubt about it. They walked and talked with Jesus Christ. And then they sinned. And when they sinned, they were kicked out of paradise. And a veil was put up between God and man. No longer could they walk and talk with God. No longer could they see God. And from that moment on, if you go to the temple or you went back to the tabernacle, there was a veil between God and man. There was a veil. You could maybe see shadows of God. You might could hear God talk through prophets, but you didn't hear God. I mean, a few people did. But for the most part, God had veiled himself. Sin had, is the veil that separated us from God. But God had a plan to remove that veil. And that plan began with the nation of Israel and he formed that nation. He 
told Abraham when he was going to form that nation and Abraham was going to have a son that, that one day that son would have a seed and that seed would be the Messiah and he would bless all of the nations. And that Messiah was born in Bethlehem and he grew up and he became a man. He grew up again with his face set to Jerusalem and set to that cross. And he went to that cross and his body was broken and he died for our sins. And on that cross, when he cried out, it is finished. At that very moment, as his body was broken, that veil was broken that separated men and women from God. And those people who choose to know God now can know God. And you can walk and talk with God. And you can see him with your spiritual eyes. Who is he? Who do you see? You see the one who is and was and is to come. Jesus Christ, Almighty God. If you don't see him as that, you don't know him. If you don't see him as that today and you're here and you don't know him as your Savior, hey, get your eyes open. Get your hearts and ears open. And all you have to do to do that is to receive Jesus Christ into your heart. You ask him into your heart. And that veil that has kept you separated from God will be removed and you can come into his very presence and you can live for him and he will bless you beyond your wildest imagination. Not with things, maybe with things, but with really with spiritual things, with eternal life, with a great life on this earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the unveiling that we have of Jesus Christ who you are, Lord, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. Lord, as we push on in this book, we're going to see even more of a vision of who you are in all of your glory. Lord, I just ask today that if there is anyone here today who does not know you and that veil is still there separating them from your presence. I ask that today be the day of their salvation. Today, Lord, that you open their hearts to, to receive Christ. It's just a simple decision they have to make and to choose you. Lord, we just, again, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence in our life. We thank you for what you did for us on the cross. We thank you for the fact that you're coming soon. Lord, just, just encourage us with this book and encourage us with that fact that, that Lord, all things are going to work out good. And that's your plan. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.